should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. I'm getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book. You can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. Hello and welcome to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to, because it was either this or resign as Prime Minister. My name is Kevin, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Benedict, who voted Romaine. Benedict, what's your favorite Halloween candy? Oh, uh, I don't know. Let's see. Um, I'd say Reese's (laughs) Pumpkin. I feel like I probably ask you this every year when Halloween rolls around. It's a classic. I probably it's a do, and I just forget. I, I'd say Reese's Pumpkin is the best. I mean, I, I'm not going to disagree. No. It's, we've talked, I, now I know, because I remember we've talked about chocolate to peanut butter ratios. That's true, we show. have. Yeah, yeah. We, we have, have, we have. It's, we have. it's pretty outstanding. I'm right good, there with the Reese's. But I'm chocolate to peanut butter ratio. I'm really, you know, when it comes to Halloween candy, I'm one of those people. I'm a candy corn guy. No, disgusting. I'll get down That's on the candy the worst corn thing all you've day. ever said on this podcast. All day. All day, son. That's all the worst. Day. The worst. Genuinely, you've said some vile, <laughs> hateful things. That is the worst. <laughs> now I'm wondering. Now I'm thinking back to what I've said on this show before. I'm wondering what if I? Who have I? All the it? listeners know what you've done. <laughs> but anyways, Ben, uh, you probably know. But I do. Uh, some of the people out there, those who don't like candy corn, uh, mm. they might be wondering to themselves, what what exactly is it? That they do here on this program. But them, I would say, the show where we go deep, 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 deep to plumb the depths of it's, right-wing thought. Okay. We're reviewing a you're chapter really, from work. It's not Halloween yet. Fiction. And you're really, I guess, uh, by the time this, this is episode our last comes out in three days. Halloween. Yeah, that's true. Okay, I'm with you. Okay, I'm, I'm there now. In between, we take a look at other examples of the right, doing their best to make America hate again. Better to start us off. Do you have a hot take for us this week? I do, and it's that I find it immensely satisfying to make food, mm. and it like th- in a way that I find hard to explain. Just like making something from start to finish, like including so for example, today I'm making a pie, but I'm also making the pie crust. I find that incredibly satisfying. You, to, my friend, need you a food processor. I to make am a pie an, crust. I, well, I, okay, that overworks the pie crust a lot of the time. Mm, and... I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I have never. It, it's it's worth it. I uh, a I don't believe in the whole overworking the pie crust thing. I think I know how many times to pulse the food processor to get it proper. But also, it's so much goddamn easier than making you've, pie listen, crust any other you, way. You, you must you must have had if you've if you've used the food processor, you must have had some soggy bottoms in your time. <laughs> I am well familiar with soggy bottoms and not just because I lived in DC for a few years. <laughs> anyway, uh, I find it very cathartic, I guess, to make something from start to finish in, in that kind of way. I don't know. It's weird. I, it's my weird hot take of the week that I was actually prepared for and yet have explained less well than wow. I've explained yeah, things. Bad that, job. Like, Be less prepared more. next time. I please. know. There you go. Okay. There you go. That no, just I reminds me, though, I just the other day uh, printed out that Roy Choi cookbook thing oh, yeah. that you sent me like six months ago there you go <laughs> finally got that printed out um you gonna ask me the question oh i thought you were gonna say something about the cookbook <laughs> no, <I'm> sorry 
<laughs> I thought you had a story, not just like, oh, no, I, I have a good for me. I just printed it out. <laughs> okay, all right. What's your hot take then? I guess uh, I am Benedict, deeply disappointed, deeply, deeply disappointed uh, in the Netflix series Unsolved Mysteries mm. uh, because the Is original it because they don't solve the mysteries. No, no, I could live without that. Uh, that, in fact, was the point of the original show: was that the mysteries were not solved, uh, but. So the Unsolved Mysteries was this show from back in the 90s and early 2000s that had the world's greatest narrator. It was the guy who played the captain in Airplane that they brought in uh, when the plane was going down. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but okay. he just had a great voice. Amazing voice. Is that voice. the guy that, that, that goes viral on Twitter every once in a while where he's like, didn't happen? Like the... Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know like the It's like Twilight zone Like It's like... In he, the... I think he was in the Twilight Zone yeah. movie. I think he was in the movie. Um, but so that this show that they'd done on Netflix, the first two seasons, I, I watched them all. They were fine. I was like, those are acceptable. You know, there's some, some Bigfoot stuff in there. Like, you know, maybe it wasn't Bigfoot, but like UFOs and stuff. And I'm just, ah, this is bullshit, but it's fun to see people who are talking mm-hmm. about what they think they saw. Uh, and then there was like, you know, your usual standard stuff. Somebody was murdered. We don't know who did it. Okay. But a, I think last season, uh, or so there was that show, the the uh, Lisa Lamb thing uh, that went around on Netflix a while back, that hotel in Los Angeles, and I was mm. deeply disappointed in that because it was a, a woman who was having a, a psychological episode and sadly died on the roof of this hotel in a water container, and they mm. turned it into some fucking paranormal bullshit. Oh, look, here's the video of her in the elevator looking down the hallway. She mm. was off her meds, and she was having an episode. It's very tragic, but mm. they fucking abused it to put out this fucking bullshit show that I'm really angry at. Uh-huh. They did the same fucking thing on Unsolved Mysteries, oh, which is a show yeah. I fucking love, where they took this young girl who died in uh, an apparent suicide on train tracks, and the whole thrust of it is... Her parents don't believe that she was suicidal. That's their evidence. That's their evidence. And I'm like, this is fucking tragic. This is not what this show is about. This show is about people who are missing. It's about murders that haven't been solved. It's not about taking a a family and just doing 45 minutes of them saying, well, she was always happy. She was always happy. She would have done this. She was always happy. It's fucking, it's gross. And it pissed me off. Yeah, that's not great. A sidebar. Something mm-hmm. I learned the other day, not the other day, I, the other week, let's say, let's give it a broad range. Mm-hmm. You know the song Runaway Train? Yeah. Runaway like the, Train, never coming back. Yes, yeah, I am aware. More, more like indie than that. But yeah, it's mm-hmm. less, it's less busy. So the video for that just had a bunch of like missing children in it. Really? Yeah. And they found like four of them. And then. Oh, shit. Yeah. And then a bunch of them also, like, some of them, there are just tragic stories, which is not good, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But then a couple of them also were like, I did not want to be found. <laughs> I was trying to remain <laughs> hidden. Oh, uh, I deliberately ran away because uh. I was in trouble. Like, so that is very weird. And they did it. They did a different video for every country that the song was released in as what? well. What? Yeah. With like the local missing children. It's very oh, weird. I had no idea about that. And <laughs> I learned this. What the fuck is that? That Weird. is strange. On yeah. to housekeeping this week, Benedict. <laughs> yep. uh, remember to rate and review us on the iTunes. Uh, and if you do, don't leave messages about how much I yell. Uh, <laughs> to be fair, they didn't specify it was you. They just assu- you just assumed. Uh, it was I you. think we know who it is who's doing the yelling. <laughs> yeah, I know because I, right at the start of the show, you went hello. <laughs> 
super loud. You know, here, so here's the thing about that. Uh, somebody left us a, a review, a four-star review. A nice review, a very nice four, review. Uh, hey, it's four stars. I don't count that as nice. They five stars or get the fuck out. star if you stopped yelling, which is, I think is fair enough. The, the thing is, um, I used to, way back when, when we started podcasting, go through an additional step in my editing process where I equalized all the sound so it hit a maximum decibel level. And it added, you know... 30 seconds to my processing time mm. as I went through these episodes. And I think somewhere along the way, I was like, oh, I don't want to fucking click that every time. Uh, and I just stopped doing it. <laughs> and so I think it's also, again? well, I mean, I listen to podcasts differently than I think a lot of people do. I rarely listen to podcasts in headphones or earbuds. Okay. Um, I usually listen to it on a speaker or in the car or something. So I think it doesn't really affect me as much when I hear someone uh, like our show <laughs> where 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 the yelling can can go up there and take the decibels a lot higher. So, I promise you um if you give us that five star, I'm holding out first. You have to give the five stars first. Uh <laughs> although I'll probably do it on this episode anyway. I will start correcting that hopefully uh and maybe, <laughs> maybe. Uh, uh make it less annoying to people who listen to me get angry all the time. I think it was when I was shouting at Alex Jones probably. Probably. Was what got it. Um <laughs> Follow us on the social medias at NYGBCPod on Twitter and at NYGBCBen. Uh, updates. I have one update this week. Uh, and it occurred to me during editing of our last episode uh, that based on Alex's definition of fascism being public-private partnerships, mm, that, he believes, that he believes the Republican Party to be a fascist party and he supports mm. it. Because that's, I mean, public-private partnership has been one of the calling cards for, like, the Republican Party for decades as a mean to gut Mm -hmm. public programs or avoid actually doing anything through government. And, you know, that's not to say that the Democrats don't do it, too, but obviously it's much more of a Republican tactic. But Mm -hmm. just just stood out to me as I was doing my editing last week on our episode, and I wanted to address it because that's what I made this section for. Uh, <laughs> spooky world, new world order this week. We have two inductees, agent of G-I-R-L, parenthetical Delaware. You are now part of our new world spooky world order. And I, I don't know if I should hold this out for the fifth star, but I'm going to no, go ahead and do it, it now. It. The individual who left that uh, review, Chili Trav, you are now part of our new world spooky world order. Thank you all. Oh, so very much. And with that. Out of the way, Bennett, why don't we get into... Actually, I should say, if you'd like to become part of the Spooky World New World Order, blah, uh, tweet or post about the show on social media, recommending to others, send me a screenshot or tag us. Leave us a five-star review wherever you can. Drop me a screenshot to let me know. Make a donation to a worthwhile charity, become a patient, or just get my attention with something good. Now, Benedict, why don't we or get tell into... tell him he's yelling. Uh, yeah, yeah, tell me I'm yelling, I guess. Why don't we get into this week's episode? What is it? Is it going to be about kittens and rainbows? No, not quite. Not quite. No, but okay. uh, today's episode, the title, which I like to tell you at the beginning, Bringing the War Home, the Militia oh, Movement yeah. Explodes in the United States. Okay. I thought it was a decent title. I thought it was decent. Good. Uh, and not Depends just because I stole Depends, that title from someone else. Uh, <laughs> did you steal it from Spencer Ackerman? He's definitely... No, but I did steal uh, it from somebody we'll talk about in a second. But, Benedict, <laughs> uh, in 1985... An anonymous article was published in the white supremacist newspaper, White America, White, yeah, White American Resistance. For some reason, I wanted okay. to put Aryan there uh, because there is a group no. called White Aryan Resistance. There is there a group is, called yeah. that, which is a violent white supremacist group, uh, was published, which stated, quote, we need every one of you. We need every branch of fighting militant whites. We are too few now to excommunicate each other. 
Whatever will save our race is what we will do. And the call to militant activism is nothing new in white supremacy. It wasn't new in 1985, it wasn't new a century earlier, but by 1985, the social shifts caused by technology, desegregation, the Reagan Revolution, and a returning generation of ex-soldiers who had fought in Vietnam created a powder keg that was ready to explode. Mm-hmm. And to begin with, I have to acknowledge, as I just mentioned, that my episode title this week and that blurb from that article uh, that I started with were stolen from a book by Kathleen Ballou, who is a pro- <laughs> professor of history at Northwestern University. Stolen whose work or Inspired. Yeah, that's good with Inspire. I prefer that. I prefer that. Uh, The the other book of hers that I've read is uh, The Field Guide to White Supremacy. It's a collection of academic articles, but very worth the read if you're interested. Uh, But Professor Ballou's full title of her book is Bring the War Home, colon, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. Uh, Because she recognizes and discusses the link between the militia movement and white supremacy, which is innate and inseparable in my mind. But I do want to note that some other people sharply differ in their analysis, and maybe not so sharply, but do differ in their analysis of the militia movement. Uh, Mark Pitt-Cabbage is a historian who works with the Anti-Defamation League and wrote his Ph.D. dissertation on the decline of state militias from 1783 to 1858. Uh, He also founded the Militia Watchdog website in the early wild and wooly days of the Internet back in 1995 after the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, It was archived in 2000 by the ADL uh, when Mark started working there, But you can still visit it today. I will link to it in the show notes and get some of that glorious early internet charm. Yeah, love that. Like the Space Jam website. Oh, yeah, man. There's something about those early websites when it's just, you know, like uh, 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 weird text boxes Mm -hmm. and nothing seems to fill the full page. It's always crammed off to the left for some reason. I don't know why. (laughs) Maybe it's because all our computer screens were square back in the day. I don't really know. Uh, And from those days through to today, Mark has been one of the primary experts on the militia movement. So in addition to reading his work, I also reached out to Mark on Twitter uh, in preparation for this episode. I saw that. He told you you were reading the wrong books. (laughs) He did, as a matter of fact. He was he was as gracious enough to give me a three-tweet-long thread of individuals and groups he think are crucial to an understanding of the militia movement. Uh, and believe me, as much as I'd love to cover all of them, there's no way to hit every one of them he gave me on so this So read episode. the books. What were the books? Uh, I didn't read his books, rather. Mark, is, he's currently working on a book uh, about sovereign citizens, he told me, a while back, long before this. Uh, but uh, the one thing in particular that I read of his uh, is an academic article that he wrote I believe in the early 2000s, yeah, 2001, February 2001, called Camouflage and Conspiracy, the Militia Movement from Ruby Ridge to Y2K. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as much as I'd love to link to that in the show notes for everyone to read, i that's the one that I told you I had to pay like $37 to fucking rent for 24 hours Ugh. so that I could read it. And you know, I downloaded a PDF, I printed it, but still... Pretty bullshit the way academic publishing works. Yeah. Uh, so I won't be able to link to that, everyone. Uh, but uh, you might be able to find it some places on the internet. I don't know. Go try. <laughs> Tell me if you can find it for free somewhere. I'd love to find out so mm-hmm. I can spread the word. Um, but like I said, there's no way I can hit everything that that he gave me uh, uh, in our, our exchange there. So I've taken some things from his list, and I will uh, link to his tweets in the show notes for everyone who wants to take a look at what he had to say uh, and do some more research on their own. But he also, in response to somebody else, and in response to my tweet, uh, discussed a bit that his view uh, that Professor Ballou is wrong 
mm-hmm. inasmuch as in Marx's eyes, the militia movement as we know it truly only began in the 1990s, and that while Ballou focuses on white supremacy, and she goes all the way back to the 60s and 70s, focuses on uh, groups like the Ku Klux Klan, um, you know, the militia movement, its true impetus to Mark is as an anti-government movement. Mm-hmm. That is the prime uh, uh, factor of the militia movement is the anti-government element of them. Although he does definitely recognize the heavy crossover that it has with white supremacist organizations and movements. Uh, he doesn't deny that at all. And I think as a synthesis, what I would take from both of my two primary sources here is that the impetus behind the militia movement may have roots in white supremacist separatism and the disaffection of soldiers returning from Vietnam, but the movement's primary character that distinguishes it from groups like racist skinheads or neo-Nazis is, like Marx says, that its primary focus is on anti-government action. This feels, uh, forgive me, but this feels a, a little uh, nitpicky to me. I know, I know a lot of... A lot of- academia is a bit yeah you know how academic nitpicking works yeah 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 i I, I mean it feels like we're fighting over terms that like there's you know i I get it i get it rome burns is like well are they anti-government or are they white supremacists while they take over the country (laughs) i know i I, look i'm 100 percent there with you i'm just trying to for the purposes of this episode have a somewhat coherent definition an academic basis okay yes but i think that also that idea of them being anti-government also touches on a question you had on our last Lunatic Fringe episode Mm. about police as the successors to militias. Mm -hmm. And I think that more concretely puts out what I think I was trying to describe as the difference between, uh, you know, police or militias or the National Guard and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's that these militia groups, as we're talking about, uh, their primary impetus is anti-government. Certainly, I, I will get into it in a moment, but the post-1990 militia movement, which I'm distinguishing from individual militias Mm -hmm. because militias and paramilitary groups have existed in the United States for a long time. So just for an example of of some of these differences, right? Professor Ballou spends a great deal of her book discussing the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, the group that David Duke was the Grand Wizard of, Mm -hmm. um, who did have several paramilitary training camps around the country where they engaged in training, Uh, as well as violence they participated in, like the Greensboro Massacre uh, and the firebombing of shrimp boats in Houston owned by Vietnamese refugees. And to my mind, um, you know, those are more terrorist actions than they are uh, militia Mm. actions. And and that's not to say that militia groups don't engage in terrorism. I know know I just talked about nitpicking, but can you define Uh the difference? Yeah. Yeah, I think that it's these are aimed at individuals they deem to be enemies of the United States. Mm-hmm. So the Greensboro Massacre was a, a confrontation between the Ku Klux Klan and uh, communist organizers who were protesting in favor of uh, African-American workers in Greensboro. Uh, and I, I don't remember the exact number, but it was either five or seven of the communists who were murdered by the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Klan, uh, all of them were later acquitted by all white juries, of course. Um, so, yeah. And they always fucking were. And the Vietnamese refugees, a lot of the hatred there came from uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, a lot of lies about these people being recipients of a bunch of government money, that they were communist sympathizers, that they were infiltrators, blah, 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 that they were stealing jobs from, you know, white uh, white working men and all that sort of bullshit you hear from racists all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's very different from the targets of the militia groups and militia movements we're really going to be talking about today, right? Okay. The Klan groups and those sorts, they always sort of characterize their actions as being in service of the country. 
Obviously, that's their version of the country where non-whites aren't really allowed, uh, but the country nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And militia groups, on the other hand, position themselves as oppositional to the country and its government most of the time. Uh, you know, largely white supremacists, but they view the uh, they view the U.S. as you know beyond saving or a force of oppression or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And another distinction I think it's worthwhile to make is that the pre-1990s era, while plenty of paramilitary groups existed around the country, it wasn't till the 90s that a true movement emerged. These groups started to act uh, in concert with one another and to coordinate and really start sharing information and strategy and tactics and all those sorts of things. Actively rather than passively is what you mean. Exactly, because... exactly. And I think... That's so certainly what... there's inspirations and echoes in the previous yes. from, from what you described earlier. Like that certainly like sounds like the Oklahoma City bombing was inspired by fucking the <laughs> events at Ruby Ridge. And we'll get to it. Yeah. We'll get to it. Um, so I think it's that difference that Mark Pitcavage points to to differentiate uh, from the militia movements of the past. Right. So the Internet mass communication in the 90s made it easier to organize, to share instructions, materials, information. Conservative rhetoric at that time had tilted towards the pseudo libertarian anti-government type. Uh, and with the fall of the Soviet Union, a new enemy was needed to fill the big bad role in the conspiracy theories that were just never going to go away. They, they, they were never going to disappear. They just needed a new enemy to be the focus of them. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to say here at the beginning, just for clarity, that what we're discussing today is the early period of the militia movement, from the 1990s to about 2008-ish. Generally, the boom period for the movement was in the 90s, and the 2000s are considered more of a dark era, uh, where a lot of the groups were broken up, either voluntarily or by prosecutions, lawsuits, etc. Um, because of that, you know, we're not going to be talking a lot about groups like the Three Percenters or the Oath Keepers until the next Lunatic Fringe episode, okay. which will cover the Tea Party era to today. Although I, I do occasionally, um, in my notes for today's episode, draw some, some comparisons to them and, and show how through lines follow through to the more recent times. So let's start for a minute by talking about what the militia movement is. And I'll be honest... As I said, after spending the last several weeks looking into this topic, I still don't think I have an adequate definition. And I think you sort of pointed out, Benedict, it's sort of nitpicking. Yep. Maybe it doesn't matter quite exactly uh, what a de how we define militia, militia movement, this sort of stuff. But I want to try and lay it out a little Other bit. than bad. Bad. Yes, they are bad. So a militia, as we will be discussing, is a group of individuals engaged in paramilitary activity, unsanctioned by the government, whose primary focus is preparedness for a coming calamity. Mm. And I say prime focus on preparedness, because while certainly some militias and members of them have carried out violent acts, that's obviously the minority of members who actually end up carrying out any overt acts of violence. The militia movement as a whole, what I will term the militia movement, this thing that started in the 90s versus militias, which have existed a lot longer, is an informal web of connections and sometimes more formal between various groups and is largely composed of people who believe that the federal government is tyrannical and illegitimate and who organize in these semi-autonomous groups to prepare for what they believe will be a final showdown with the government in which they will overthrow the illegitimate regime. Most of their motivation. Most of their motivation is based on conspiracy theories mm -hmm. rather than legitimate gripes. And uh, how, how much of it is based on, uh, I'm trying to think of a better way to put it, but no, just the Second Amendment being like, you know, the the the, the Constitution calls for well-regulated militias. We're just obeying what the founders wanted. That is um, an element I'm going to talk about okay. shortly. I'll let, you, I'll let you do your thing. 
No, it's a good question. It's definitely a good question. And, and we're going to get to it, is all I'm saying. We're okay. going to get to it. It is an element here. But these sorts of people talk constantly about the New World Order, FEMA camps, gun mm-hmm. confiscation, communism behind every bush, uh, United Nations troops invading the country, and of course, you know, all, all the racist conspiracies. They're all out there too, right? You, you look in these groups and, and you see the word Zog all over the place, which as <laughs> we've learned... Stands for Zionist Occupied Government. Uh-huh. It's basically a neo-Nazi phrase. Yep. Uh, overwhelmingly, the members members of militias and the militia movement are Christian, right-wing, white, racist, and hoping for an opportunity to carry out justified violence. Mm-hmm. Which I think is another another trend we've seen, certainly that carries through. I think in the wake of the Kyle Rittenhouse murders, uh, I talked on this show a bit about how it's all about that fantasy of justified violence. It's fucking a masturbatory fantasy of being able to go out and kill the people you deem subhuman or your enemies or whatever the fuck. Mm -hmm. It's the same type of thing. They all want it. They all fantasize about it. But overall, what I'll call the militia movement is a system of coordination, communication, and cooperation between the various paramilitary groups across the country that developed in the 90s that allowed for the greater spread of ideas and more cross-pollination that helped to develop this overall ideology Uh, despite how different ideas were and, to some extent, still continue to be from group to group. So we also need to briefly touch on some groups that may or may not be malicious. Starting with the Boogaloo Boys. Oh, Uh, God. A group of... (laughs) Yeah. Do we have to? We do. A group of shithead Hawaiian shirt-wearing accelerationists, and it is is an anti-government extremist movement. It definitely Mm -hmm. is. But not one I would characterize as a militia. Uh, Boogaloos are sort of the analog of the Groypers for the militia movement, uh, where you have the Groypers, the neo-Nazi little shits uh, who think that groups like Turning Point USA or College Republicans aren't extreme enough. Boogaloos sit in a similar position vis-a-vis the more traditional militias. They Mm. want shit to pop off. Um, Boogaloo shitheads often make overtures towards being like pro-Black Lives Matter or civil rights and stuff, but their overall goal is really anti-government. And it's to whenever they go into this sort of, you know, uh, we we support these BLM protests, it's not because there's any uh, care from them about racial issues. It's because Mm -hmm. they want to fight the U.S. government. That's what it is. Right. Uh, They Mm -hmm. want to start a shooting war with the U.S. government, a second civil war, which is where the name of the movement comes from. Uh, The meme that started Civil War Two, electric boogaloo. Exactly. Exactly. That's where it came from. And Boog's. Uh, Boogaloos took advantage. I, I call them, I, I more often call them Boogs, uh, which I think almost makes it sound too cool. Uh, took advantage of the George Floyd protests of 2020 to commit acts that they believe would help to start that seven, second civil war, including several mm-hmm. mur- several murders. Um, the most notable was Stephen Carrillo, who murdered a federal protective service officer in May 2020 and a Santa Cruz County deputy in California in June 2020. Uh, He carried out his attacks wearing a vest with the Boogaloo flag on it, which is a black and white U.S. flag with an igloo on it and a Hawaiian pattern stripe, and wrote the phrase, I became unreasonable in his own blood on the hood of a car that he hijacked. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Another group of Boogs had made plans to bomb a police station in Minneapolis. Uh, Others started fires during the protest. The list goes on. But they are not, in my mind, a militia, because they are not organized in any way, shape, or form. They have no organizational structure, no leadership structure, no coherent ideology beyond accelerationism and anti-government ideas, and a desire to commit violence. 
Uh, it's sort of the rational result of decades of right-wing culture, screaming that the federal government is, you know, alternately fascist or communist, whatever one they want to scream about today. Uh, we also need to briefly talk about groups like left-wing gun clubs and self-defense movements. I think some of these uh, more closely resemble and can be called militias. Uh, some people may have heard of John Brown gun clubs, and certainly there are militant black separatist groups out there that engage in the same sort of preparation and training that the militias we're going to be talking about uh, today. But uh, I highlight these mainly to make the point that we're not going to be talking about any of them today. So mm. if you're wondering, they exist. They probably qualify as militias. Uh, they haven't had any sort of the activity uh, that the militia movement, the right-wing militia movement, has had. Uh, they're certainly far fewer in number. Uh, they have... I am not aware of any violent acts carried out by these left-wing groups. Um, it's possible there's a couple out there I haven't heard of, but certainly nothing to the scope of what right-wing militias have done. Mm -hmm. But why don't we finally talk about the militia movement's origins? Uh, so as I said... The U.S. has had self-governance movements, paramilitary groups, and far-right extremists as long as it has existed. And the American militia movement is the heir of the legacy of all those groups, which is to say it is as incomprehensible and schizophrenic of a group as you could imagine to try and apply broad labels and characterizations to. Uh, and that makes sense because, as I noted, the militia movement is really just a loose agreement between all of these groups that the enemy is the federal government and participation in trying to bring about the broader goals, sometimes through active cooperation, other times just promotion of the successes or losses that other groups have had, and sometimes just sharing of materials and information. So because of the way it formed, the militia movement served largely as a means of expanding reach and influence, bringing ideas from one group into contact with those of others, and certainly expanding the overall numbers of the movement. How much of this was built on email forwards? So much. Just, so much. Really? Oh, 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 and it's worse than that, Ben. Again. It's worse than that. It's oh, worse than no. email forwards. There were fax groups. Oh, there were God. fax groups. People would fax things to hundreds of people. Faxes, Benedict. I was Benedict. joking again. <laughs> I got, okay, I'm just going to stop making jokes on this podcast. No, it's podcast. funny because the extremist movements have always been early adapters of technology, mm -hmm. uh, right? They're not the very first ones, obviously, but they saw opportunity in these new means of communication, and mm -hmm. they jumped on them, right? Early internet message boards, these fax groups that I find hilarious. There were, uh, like, uh, toll-free telephone numbers that people would set mm -hmm. up. That would just, they'd like change the recording message so people could come in, could call in these toll-free numbers and get like a, a recorded, like here's the militia news of the day or something like that, mm -hmm. right? All these ways of communicating that people come, came up with, um, it, it, there is some innovation there. There's definitely some mm -hmm. innovation there, especially given that this was the early 90s uh, yeah. and a lot of this stuff was very new. So, but obviously exact numbers are hard to come by, especially since they're, you know, th these are groups that thrive on paranoia. Uh, mm -hmm. So many of them did not keep official membership roles, or if they did, they kept them very secret. So it's easier to characterize them by the number of active groups. And the peak, as far as number of active groups came, uh, occurred in 1996, when according to the Who, Southern... Who's tracking this? The SPLC? Uh, the SPLC, say, the ADL, yeah. groups like that. Militia okay. Watch, uh, Mark Bukavich, before he joined the ADL. Uh, those were the sorts of people who were keeping track of this. I, be I mean, they must have blind spots as well, though. Uh, I mean, oh, yeah, it, obviously, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and there's also another thing where, you know, there is a incentive for these groups to lie about the number of people they have as, as members. 
like in both directions, presumably. Uh, I think more often than not, you see them lying to expand their numbers than to contract them. Is what it seems okay. like. Uh, there was one group. I think it was the militia of Montana. Uh, we're going to talk about a little later. Um, at one point, they claimed to have twelve thousand members, which I do not believe. I, I don't no. believe they had twelve thousand members. I believe they had a mailing list with twelve thousand people on it. Yeah. I don't believe they had twelve thousand members. Yeah. Right. Um, so. In 1996, the SPLC uh, said that there were 858 active militia groups across the U.S., mm-hmm. um, which, which is a lot, right? It's, it's more than one per state. <laughs> it's certainly more than one per state. That's a lot. That's a lot of groups. Mm-hmm. It's hard to extrapolate from that exactly how many people. Estimates range anywhere from 50,000 up to like 2.5 or 250,000 somewhere around there, active militia members. I tend to think it's more on the low end. I think those higher numbers come mostly from the leaders of these groups inflating how many people were actually active militia members. I think it's where the higher estimates come in. Uh, Okay. But what exactly are some of the threads that bind these groups, right? The, the, um, that are generally common to groups within the militia movement as existed in the 90s and continuing through the 2000s. Mm-hmm. I think we can generally say that a core conspiracy exists. And it's different than some of the other meta-conspiracies that we've uh, looked at on this show already. Um, obviously, there's any number of subsidiary, subsidiary conspiracies that can be related to or not to the core idea. But generally, most militia groups' conspiracies, um, they're a lot of what we've already discussed. So one component is that mass gun confiscation is on the way so that the New World Order won't have any opposition to their regime when it comes in. Uh, Mm -hmm. Many groups believe that there will be a literal door-to-door confiscation program with the police or military or UN troops or whoever will be the ones who will be used to do it. And I mean, oh, that brings something else up to my mind. I was about to mention we watched the Alex Jones uh, clip of him, you know, harassing whoever that guy was, uh, the, mm-hmm. the guy who was talking about how they were there doing the training program. Yeah, um, yeah. Somebody on Twitter commented to us that I misheard that and he didn't say Holland. He said New Orleans. And I mm-hmm. went back to and listened to it. I still think he says Holland or the Netherlands or something. I, okay. I, I'm not sure because it's a very thick accent. I heard that dude having, and it's, I don't think he's American, is what I'm getting at. I'm 90% sure that the whole situation was like an international training thing, um, and it was this dude from Europe somewhere who's just being polite to Alex and doesn't have a a pure grasp of English. That's what I think I know, New Orleans, people from New Orleans have some pretty thick accents. I mean, that can be true. That can be true, but it was, it's a different thick accent than the one I heard on that guy. Uh, but, you know, this is this is a really common, just general right-wing conspiracy today. This is nothing mm. that we don't see all the time. Uh, even in our recent episodes, right, we've heard, we saw Timothy McVeigh uh, writing letters about gun confiscation. Uh, I think we played some Charlie Kirk where he might have been talking about they're coming for your guns. And mm. Deanna Lorraine, I remember saying something about gun confiscations. It might might have not made it into that episode. It might have just been on something I watched her doing. Uh, but you can also I, see... I how, how much of it comes from like stuff the UN has actually done in the wild, right? Because Very little. V- very little, I know. But like I, the only thing I can think of is the UN trying to get involved in former Yugoslavia, failing utterly. 
But like, are we siding with Milosevic then? Like, what's the like? Who... I don't even think it's related to that. I think it goes back further. A lot of these people who are involved in the militia movement, right, eighties, nineties, uh, they have ties back to, if not being members of the John Birch Society, to ha- being sympathetic to the ideas of the John Birch Society and the idea that the UN is this attempt to bring in that new world order that they're all scared about. It uh-huh. just sort of trickles back to that area. Seems to be the gen- general idea of it. And then also you have, you know, these things like like that thing Alex Jones is going on about, where they're just running training drills. They have like a, you know, <laughs> annual drill, and they're doing trainings um, in, in some part of the country, and it's troops from all around the world, and they're doing like a door-to-door search thing. And so they're mm-hmm. saying that they're training to come and do that to us Americans. That's the general idea. I think that's where a lot of it comes from. Um, but it is also worth noting uh, that this, again, as I said, is a big element of Alex Jones's meta conspiracy. And given that he was much more militia focused in his early days, that's not really all that surprising. Uh, another core conspiracy, part of this, com- I don't know if it's a component of one core conspiracy or if it's um, a triumvirate of conspiracy that we have, because there's three, mm. three core components here, is that the end goal is to enslave Americans. Enslave how, you ask? Mm. Well, usually it just means taking their guns and having Democrats in office. Okay. Uh, Slave, yeah. <laughs> I mean, part of this is that in order to get there, they will have to suspend the Constitution and declare martial law, which, of course, is always just around the corner and helps to explain everything that's going on right now today here. Mm-hmm. And if you go back and look in these spaces, you'll always see chatter about basically any racial justice protest uh, really just being excused for a declaration of martial law. Same thing happened with COVID in more recent times. They'll just take any tragedy and say, this is this is provocateur. This is all done by the government. This is how they're going to bring in martial law. It's mm-hmm. just what they always go for. And the final part of our triumvirspiracy uh, <laughs> is the concentration camp. Um, we've never really gotten deep into the FEMA camp conspiracy theory, which mm-hmm. maybe we have to do eventually because it's really funny to me. Like, really right. fucking funny. Because FEMA so often, being the disaster relief agency. Yes, yes. The right. Federal Emergency Management Agency. Yeah. This thing just pop Like, FEMA camps pop up every couple of years um, because, like... So, you know, on some conspiracy blog, somebody will post some blurry photographs of shipping containers behind a fence. Mm. And they'll be like, this is the FEMA camp. They're setting it up. Isn't it? They're setting like, up the FEMA camp. <laughs> where, where we actually did put people in camps. Like the Trump administration did put mm-hmm. people yeah. in camps. And everyone was like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. All these people were like, yeah, good. Right, right. <laughs> as but long Benedict, as you put the right people. That, that's not happening to patriots, which is yeah. when they actually care about it. Right, it's patriots. Also, when we get to the next episode on this, when we talk about the more recent um, militia movement, we will have to talk about some of the changes that have come mm. uh, since this time period. The fact that they finally had their guy in office, right, in Donald Trump, and that led some of the larger ones, the Oath Keepers, I think, being the most obvious and the one that most people would think of, to pivoting towards not so much an anti-government position anymore as a anti-democrat it's just they're just Mm. anti-democrat that's that's all it is whereas i think some of these people back in the 90s they would have hated the government no matter who was in charge some of them 
Uh, a lot of them really much more because they hated the Democrats and Bill Clinton and general concept of liberal well, that, democracy. I mean, that, that's kind of where Alex Jones got whatever bona fides he has. Isn't yeah. It? Like that he just hated everyone and he like spoke truth to everyone. And like, that's his whole thing is like, I hate Republicans and Democrats until he didn't. It, one of the bumpers that leads into his show, a bumper on a radio program is like a voice that plays before the, the host actually starts talking. Right. Mm-hmm. One of the bumpers that he, I don't know if he still does it, but that played a lot was, above the left-right paradigm. Yeah. And and that's, I mean, it's always been total horseshit because he's always been a right-wing hack. His problem with Republicans was that they weren't far-right enough. Mm-hmm. That was Alex Jones's problem with Republicans. Yep. It had nothing to do with him being above the left-right paradigm. It was just him being full of shit. Um, so anyways, right, this whole thing that I just fucking love... Um, is that, you know, they're setting up FEMA concentration camps around the country. They're just waiting for prisoners to arrive. The, the prisoners obviously being white, upstanding American patriots like you. Mm. Um, and I'll give them credit, at least, that it's more coherent than most Second Amendment extremism. By which I mean, like, most of the people who scream about needing an AR-15 or a rocket launcher... D- do not need an AR-15. Yeah, well, they can't give you a coherent reason why they need it. And it sort of co- becomes yeah, circular. Yeah, fuck you, I like guns. Right, I, I need my Second yeah. Amendment right in order to protect my Second Amendment rights. It's yeah. Or that sort of thing. That's yeah, really quite circular. Logic, but at yeah. least here, you've got a conspiracy that actually explains why they supposedly would need their guns. If any of this was mm-hmm. real, then yeah, you'd probably need some guns you'd to fight back. probably want and need a gun, yeah. <laughs> it would probably make sense. I would be all, I would be with them on that if this was real. It's a whole mm-hmm. lot stronger than the, you know, tax increases for the top income bracket is oppression type of argument. Um, and the core theme that brings these three conspiracies together, and, and some, you know, believe all three are part of the same plan, some might believe more strongly in FEMA camps than gum confiscation, whatever, um... depending on how you want to view it, is that there's an oppressive federal government because, of course, these things Mm -hmm. have never happened and they never will happen, so they don't actually have any concrete gripes uh, to complain about. What actually matters is that patriots need to be prepared to fight back when these things eventually do never happen. Uh, Yeah, right, which is, of course, it's the militia's motivating priority. It's not taking any action now. It's preparing for the inevitable thing that never happens. That's what Mm. it's really all about. So, as I mentioned at the beginning of today's show, Mark Pitcavage maintains that the militia movement is not a white supremacist movement. Uh, And there are militias that have non-white members. That is certainly true. Mm -hmm. There is heavy overlap with white supremacy. And I think what Mark is getting at is that the primary impetus is not the white supremacy component, although that is certainly there. He certainly acknowledges it. The primary impetus is the anti-government portion of it. Although I would tie it back to the sort of anti-civil rights activism that came out of the John Birch Society as to why this Mm -hmm. government is supposedly oppressive for a great number of these people. That's where I would go with it. Uh, But as I mentioned, he wrote his seminal work on the topic, that academic article, Camouflage and Conspiracy. And he definitely recognizes in there that the movement is descendant of earlier movements from the Ku Klux Klan to the Christian front organizations that were formed by Nazi priest Father Coughlin. uh, And those formed during the Cold War as well, like the Minutemen, the California Rangers, the Christian Patriot Defense League, and probably the best named white supremacist militia, the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord. Mm. which is a a group related to Christian identity, the white supremacist cult religion. Um, 
But I also want to briefly highlight an individual before we go any further uh, that some people with familiarity with the subject may know and may wonder why I'm not talking about. And that is a man by the name of Louis Beam. Uh, and Louis Beam is a white supremacist terrorist who carried out multiple bombings and is a member of the Aryan Nations. He's still alive, by the way, uh, who deserves an episode to himself. But I don't know if that'll happen. I don't know if it'll fit in anywhere in, in our structure here. But the main thing that he is known for is the leaderless resistance idea. And in reading about militias, you'll come across the Rocky Mountain Rendezvous, which was the name of a meeting of white supremacist and militia. Why does this all? Why does all this stuff happen in the fucking Rockies? I, you know, it feels like everything's in the Rockies. That part of the country, just from Colorado up to like Montana and stuff, it's all fucking Wyoming. It's all fucking wild. It's all fucking wild. That whole area, mm. like Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Utah, Arizona, Colorado. I don't know shit about New Mexico. I'll be honest about that. But that <laughs> whole couple of state stretch is fucking batshit. Like anywhere of, where you can hide from the government in the mountains. Yeah, I mean, like <laughs> Idaho is obviously the home of the Aryan Nations. We talked about that. Um, Wyoming, Montana, they both had big militias. A lot of white supremacists are out there where there's just lots of land, nobody around that can do whatever they want. There's a lot of crazy bullshit going on out there. But this mm. Rocky Mountain Rendezvous was a meeting of about 160 white supremacist and militia leaders in Colorado in 1992. And it took place at a YMCA, by the way, which I, I find funny for some reason. Um, at which Beam gave a speech urging his idea of lone wolf groups and small cells of resistance, i.e. terror, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and there's also, and I should have gotten a PDF of this. I, and this was dumb of me. Um, I went to Louis Beam's website, uh, which I always try to avoid. I always try to use the Wayback Machine to go to an archived version so I don't have to actually go to their website. I mm -hmm. clicked on a link, and it was dumb of me. Uh, and I went to his newsletter, which was titled The Seditionist. Uh, and on in February 1992... Not The Sedition Edition? That's so much better. Come on. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, he published this article titled Leaderless Resistance. And I will... I Actually, I have... Uh, I mean, I have a printed copy of it. Maybe I'll just scan this and put it on our website and link to it so people can see it if they want. Um, but I will just read one paragraph from it so you can, you can see what this is all about here. He wrote, The concept of leaderless resistance is nothing less than a fundamental departure in theories of organization. The orthodox scheme of organization is diagrammatically represented by the pyramid, with the mass at the bottom and the leader at the top. This fundamental of... Uh, this fundamental of organization is to be seen not only in armies, which are, of course, the best illustration of the pyramid structure, with the mass of soldiery, the privates at the bottom, responsible to corporates who are corporals, who are in turn responsible to sergeants and so on up the entire chain of command to the generals at the top. But the same structure is seen in corporations, ladies' garden clubs, and in our political system itself. Ladies' garden clubs? <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> I love that. My just... my general, my queen of the ladies' garden club. <laughs> yeah, and he goes on to talk about basically. And so I read that just to point out, this is not a groundbreaking idea, as much as he might like to pretend that it is so. And he makes the point himself in this by talking about how communists have had cell structures for a long time. And obviously this is something that's been going on for centuries. Right, leaderless resistance, as it's called, small groups of people who are resisting whatever the structure is, that's that's nothing new. It's nothing yeah. breakthrough. It's it's nothing really interesting, right? And I think there are a couple things about Beam, right, that, that you could say that obviously this idea of leaderless resistance has been borne out 
based on the pattern of history. From, you know, you have uh, Islamic radical terrorists who have, you know, worked out of either small cells or individual lone wolves. Uh, you have, obviously, the many white supremacist terrorists who've done the same thing. Um, but Beam himself falls more under the definition of a terrorist than a militia leader. Um, mm. And that's, like I said, this leaderless resistance idea, it's not really a breakthrough as much as people like to try, and even people in the media sometimes give him credit for. It's really just a general tactic used for centuries. And not, is it not just basic insurgency? Yeah, like? and also I would point out the natural result of the fact that a lot of the people in the white supremacist movement really fucking hate each other and fight a lot yeah. and don't like, get along. <laughs> Like the they don't want to work vulcanization within movements is like, and it's not truly leaderless, is it? I no. mean, it's it's still like you still have a figurehead. It's just not necessarily one giving orders. Like that, it, it, right. nobody's no man is an island in these things. Right? Like, still there's still getting some kind of. It's like when corporations say that they have a horizontal instead of a vertical structure. <laughs> like okay, but there's still a fucking CEO. Somebody like, horizontally the the there day, has the power to fire me. Right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I can fire you sideways if I want to. (laughs) But so going back, uh, Mark Pitcavage places the beginning of the militia movement outside of many of those forebears and directly descendant from one group in particular. And that ideology that was passed down distinguishes the militia movement from being something other than just the newest wave in right-wing paramilitary obsession. And that group is the Posse Comitatus which was founded in the 70s by Henry Beach in Oregon, and its California branch was led by a man by the name of William Potter Gale. Uh, Mm -hmm. Beach, for his part, was a former member of the Silver Shirts, a Nazi-connected underground fascist organization created after the fall of Nazi Germany. William Potter Gale had ties to the Aryan Nations, the Sovereign Citizen Movement, and the Church of Jesus Christ Christian which is a white supremacist Christian identity precursor founded by a Klan organizer in the 1940s. And Posse Cabotatis' main belief, this is one that you will be familiar with, Benedict, was that Mm -hmm. the U.S. people had been lied to about the entire nature of the U.S. government. And what most of us consider government is actually an illegitimate body that had taken power through conspiracy. And the true government was pure local governance with the local sheriff as the highest authority in the land who has the authority to overrule the federal or state governments. Everybody do it. Great stuff. I know you just love the sheriff stuff. I, just, I love the sheriff stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. We've never, huge we've never said it here on the show, but Benedict is the descendant of the sheriff of Nottingham. Uh, That's true, yeah. <laughs> really My big people on fought Robin Hood proudly. <laughs> So obviously, this idea took off in far right. It wasn't. It wasn't created by Posse Comitatus, obviously, right? This is more uh, sovereign citizen type stuff uh, that probably made its way into Posse Comitatus rather than vice versa. Uh, but this took off in far right circles, and there is now a pretty common contention beyond just militias. Um, you know, it's in sovereign citizens, some QAnon circles, and just like some wacky right wingers at your garden variety Trump rally who think that the yep. sheriff cannot be told what to do by courts or the state or whatever the fuck it's such a funny thing my <laughs> sheriff is the highest power in the land is the funniest thing that any conspiracist has ever said it really is I and mean, remember remember we talked about randy weaver running wanting to run for sheriff and how he is mm-hmm. giving out those uh i think he was giving out cards that said get out of jail free. <laughs> so funny really truly hilarious it really is it really is but this highlights how the extreme right made that shift that we talked about earlier towards an anti-government posture. 
Right. So where earlier groups uh, were focused on the threat of commies or immigrants or whatever, uh, they positioned themselves as though they were in support of the government. Whereas these guys, no, 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 no. That's an illegitimate government. We're in support of the, the, the true government, but that's not the U.S. government. So they're taking a decidedly anti-United States government posture in this way. Mm-hmm. And with the change in times and laws, the acceptance of abortion rights, civil rights, gun control, these groups pivoted more to oppose the government that they now saw themselves in opposition to. Um, and it's also worth noting the overlap of posse comitatus members with Christian identity. Um, as time went on, obviously, we know that the, one of the founders had roots in an earlier version of Christian identity. But Christian identity holds that one should follow God's law rather than human law, which, uh, again, could also just be something that a lot of evangelicals believe, but it's worth noting mm-hmm. that it's part of Christian identity. Oh, and it's also hilarious to me. Uh, uh, one of the things that the posse comitatus tried to do, and William Potter Gale, uh, the one who, who was from California, was the one who actually did this, was to set up something that he called the Committee of the States, which was basically LARPing as the government. And he named himself Commander-in-Chief and all the militias were supposedly his enforcement arm. I just, I find that great. I find that so great. Like, we're the real government! Like, it's, it's, it's... (laughs) Yeah, sure, right. Whatever you say, that's good. (laughs) But it does also, I think, that attempt to create the Committee of the States show an attempt to bring these militia groups together. Mm -hmm. Um, So, the militia movement as we know it today emerged out of a sort of mishmash of right-wing militia activity and the posse comitatus ideology. Uh, And the phrase that they used a lot was unorganized militia, specifically unorganized militia, which is the Mm -hmm. phrase used in federal law for militias that are not part of the National Guard or naval militias. Although any actual militia to exist has to be recognized by some law, and of course none of these were. Uh, but it was, and this is a call back to what you asked me about earlier, an attempt mm-hmm. to gain legitimacy, which is another trend that you see in the militia movement from our time period through to the present day, right? Um, this attempt to portray themselves as actually having some sort of authority. We saw this with the Oath Keepers around January 6th. They wanted mm-hmm. Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act, and then they would come in and uh, massacre Congress, whatever the fuck they were going to do. <laughs> Um, seems more and more likely every day that was their overall plan. Uh, but one of the people who did this, used this sort of phrase, was a man named Larry Pratt. And he was the founder, and I know that's funny for you British people. Uh, he was the founder of a, is funny. <laughs> of a group called Gun Owners of America, uh, which was, uh, and he was a frequent guest of Alex Jones, uh, more so in the earlier days than now. But his group, and Alex, believed that the NRA was not extreme enough. Um, And during the Rodney King riots, uh, one of the statements he made to the press was telling the LAPD to call on the unorganized militia to help solve the situation, by which presumably he meant massacring all the black people. Uh, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that's what he meant. That is often what they mean. It's surprising how often that's what they mean, if I'm going to be honest about it. It's usually about massacring all the black people. Uh, But the militia movement, as we are discussing, it arises out of a series of events in the early 90s, most notably the Rodney King riots, the election of Bill Clinton, the passage of NAFTA, the Brady gun law, the assault weapons ban, and then, most importantly, Ruby Ridge and Waco. And everything on that list convinced the hard right that the government was coming for them and that their values, their rights were under attack, 
And then Ruby Ridge and Waco, particularly the narratives that were built up about those events by the hard right, convinced them that, well, they must be right. Right. The fact that both insult federal gun crimes also helped to reinforce that idea. You know, they're coming for our guns, obviously. But another important mm -hmm. factor was that by the 90s, the far right had developed its own media network, which included, as I told you a little while ago, early Internet bulletin boards, toll free phone mm -hmm. numbers, videotapes. That was an important one. Uh, back in the day, Bill Cooper and Alex Jones both sold videotapes and I think cassette tapes. Um, which, you know, I think Alex, I know Alex openly encouraged people to buy a VCR that was capable of copying videotapes and making as many copies as they could and sending them to all their friends. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How very anti-capitalist right? and pro -piracy. Well, Alex, and a good thing for us when we do Alex stuff, Alex has repeatedly said on his show that people are able to take his material and use it however they want. He doesn't care. They can replay it. They can okay. repost it. They can modify it. Whatever they want to do, he doesn't care. He just cares about the there's, message I mean, getting out. There's, there's something to that. There is, because... Obviously, he's become from a massively from wealthy a from it. Point of view. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there were shortwave radio shows like Bill Cooper's, and you know, funniest to me, as I said, the fax networks, where people would just like fax newsletters <laughs> to hundreds of people. Uh, Whatever, man. Whatever works. <laughs> like... And this meant that the spread of materials from important figures in the movement would get passed further and further, reproduced more and more, magnifying the influence of some popular figures of the movement, where before it had been much more stratified and regional. So one of the more important figures of this kind was one that we've talked about before, Linda Thompson. Do you remember Linda Thompson? Yes. Are you going to tell me how you remember Linda Thompson? No. <laughs> She was the lawyer based out of Indianapolis and the creator of the movie Waco the Big Lie. Mm -hmm. That's Linda. That's our girl. Uh, she operated an internet message board for the militia community. Uh, we discussed her Waco stuff already, of course, but she also put together at one point a list of 24 people connected to Bill Clinton who she claimed died under, quote, other than natural yeah, circumstances. Yeah, I remember that. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's why that Which she even got a GOP congressman to call for hearings on. Okay. And this this goes back to something that was going on during the Bill Clinton years of there's this guy named Larry uh, uh, Larry Nichols, who mm -hmm. was like a former campaign aide of Bill Clinton on his gubernatorial campaign. And then he was fired from a job he had been given in the Arkansas state government because he made like thousands of dollars worth of collect calls through the government phone system right. to the Contras. Cool. To the Contras. Of course. <laughs> The the oh God, for and then sake. he made the rest of his he he died a year or two. Are ago. we going to talk about the Contras at some point? Maybe at some point I we might like have, we to. have to. But he made the rest of his career just on this claim of these Arkansides that were happening and how Bill and Hillary are killing people. At one point, he claimed that Hillary went to a church for witches. Uh, witches. <laughs> that's where I got witches. Yeah. Yeah. That you recall, you know. <laughs> I don't know why this is even going into the show. No. But last time I think that we had Morgan Stringer on, yeah. uh, Morgan and I both went, witches. Yeah. And that's because that's how Larry Nichols pronounces witches. <laughs> <laughs> it's the greatest, man. It's the greatest. Uh, and in 1994, after her big hit, Waco the Big Lie, uh, and the follow-up, the sequel to that, Waco 2 the Big Lie continues... <laughs> That's worse than the Boogaloo Boys. 
She put out a third movie called America Under Siege, which was all about the FEMA camps, the New World Order, black helicopters, um, and the supposed FEMA camp that she highlighted in the film was actually an Amtrak repair facility in Indiana. Great. Great. <laughs> People are such fucking so idiots. Oh, is it is it a FEMA camp or is it a train depot? Like, are you fucking that few trains in this country that you can't tell the difference between a concentration you know, camp Indiana, and a place right? where the it trains is. sleep? It is Indiana. You're fucking kidding me. I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if someone from Indiana had never seen a train before. I live in the Midwest Jesus now. Jesus Christ. Uh, But she also, in 1994, declared herself the acting adjutant general of the unorganized militia of the United States. That is the second person to declare themselves the commander of all the militias in the United States that we've talked about. Uh, And she tried to organize an armed march on the capital of the United States to arrest Congress members who she thought weren't living up to their oaths. Uh, That was canceled after even the John Birch Society denounced it. Wow. But by the end of 1994, civil rights groups and law enforcement agencies were starting to ring an alarm about the proliferation of the anti-government extremist militia groups, right? Remember, uh, Ruby Ridge was in 1992. That was one of the big first spurs. And then in 1994, you had, uh, was it 93 or 94? I forget Waco. It was either 93 or 94, but off the top of my head, uh, I can't remember. Uh, But anyways, it was, you know, those two big movements. Uh, those two big events that that spurred a lot of these things to happen. It was 1993. I just looked it up, by the way. Uh, But so 1994, a lot of these groups are starting to get rolling. And some of these organizations in the public, ACL, uh, the uh, ADL, the SPLC, and even some law enforcement agencies are starting to go, there's a lot of um, guys with guns walking around in the woods. (laughs) uh, Uh, Have you seen all these people with guns that are interested in the woods? What's, what's going on there? What's and that certainly you know, wasn't helped by the fact that a lot of these people had sovereign citizen ideologies. So if they were pulled over by the police, there was an element they of danger didn't there. They recognize it? No, no, certainly not. And then in 1995, some media incorrectly claimed that Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols were militia members. And while we covered that they did attend some meetings of the Michigan militia, calling them members of the Michigan militia is inaccurate. Okay. Uh, they certainly were motivated by the same factors. That's they had it, the yeah. same ideology. They read the same books. They believed the same things. Yeah, but they at hadn't some point, joined. I feel like if you quacks like a dog. <laughs> like, well, I think there is. It is worth sh- making the point that there's a difference because you know militias. Remember, are a pyramid structure. As much yeah. as Louis Beam might not like them to be. They had commanders and people who called themselves generals and gave themselves fake awards and all that bullshit, right? And those were the people who were in charge and told people what to do. Terry Nichols and Timothy McVeigh acted alone. Uh, well, they had a couple of people. Yeah. Right? They acted with each other. <laughs> they they uh, acted alone, apart from... Terry Nichols' brother, you know, had some awareness of what was going on. We had that girlfriend who was informed, all those people. Yeah. But largely, they but didn't do this... is different to uh, helping. Right. They were certainly... Uh, additionally radicalized by the militia movement. We know, obviously, that McVeigh was going around from gun show to gun show, and that was a big gathering point for militia uh, individuals during mm-hmm. this time period. Uh, and and like I said, like he read the same books. He believed the same yeah. shit. If things had gone wise, if, if he would have maybe not done this, 
he might have joined a militia at some point, mm-hmm. but he didn't actually join the the Michigan militia. So I think it is worth making that point that he actually didn't. But regardless of the reality, right, this brought a great deal of attention to militias in the media. And unsurprisingly, this caused a swell of recruiting and awareness for militia groups. And when the event that spawns a great boom of new recruits is a mass bombing that killed 169 people, you're not going to be getting the best of no. them, as Donald Trump would say. They're not sending their best uh, to come join your militias. And so this might be one of the things that helped to bring about really the decline of the militia movement from late 1996 onwards. So as I noted, this coincided with some increased scrutiny by law enforcement on militia activities. So from 1995-1996, we see the boom of the groups across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, the many, uh, you know, many of these groups might be familiar to people even today because of all the attention they had back mm-hmm. then. Uh, the militia of Montana for example, was founded in 1994 by David and John Trockman and is one of the foundational militias of the movement. It was one of the very first few formed in the wake of Ruby Ridge and, uh, uh, and, and uh, uh, Waco. Mm-hmm. And John and David formed their group from the remains of another, which was called United Citizens for Justice, that was created in 1992 as a reaction to the Ruby Ridge mm-hmm. standoff. So by June 1994, John was pulling in a crowd of 800 people to hear him speak in Kalispell, Montana. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but who cares? It's Montana. And in 1995, he claimed to have over 12,000 members trained and ready to respond to the tyrannical U.S. government. Sure. It's great. I don't believe that. Number. No, there's really been a lot of non-believing number. of numbers. From I, I don't believe there's 12,000 people in Montana. <laughs> Maybe some you of the numbers You can't convince me otherwise. <laughs> I've seen some uh, white supremacists out there. I don't know about you. <laughs> uh, another key figure in the uh, militia of Montana was a man by the name of Robert Fletcher. Uh, who was a rabid anti-Semite, who told the New York Times, quote, If the bulk of the banking elite are Jewish, is that anti-Semitic? The people who are doing this are the international banking elite, and if they're all Jews, so be it, but that's not the case. I don't care if they're Arabs or monkeys, end quote. Okay. <laughs> not, not a great, a great guy. guy. Uh, <laughs> but the militia of Montana's place as one of the first militias founded in this new era and under the new ideology gave it a great amount of prestige and influence in the wider movement. And some of these militias, you know, particularly the Montana militia, the Mich- um, uh, Michigan militia, um, these sorts of groups, these these larger ones, they disseminated a lot of the information that went out to other places. So they were writing the newsletters that got the greatest circulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got the most attention and and certainly the most prestige out of all of them. They, so, you know, they, they had newsletters, they held rallies and protests and engaged in the occasional wackadoo escalation attempt like that time uh, that they went to the courthouse in Muscle Shell County, Montana, to file papers protesting the seizure of a home by the IRS of a tax protester by the name of Rodney Skirdall. Uh, of course, they went there with handguns, six assault rifles, and for some reason, $80,000 in cash, gold, and silver in their cars. Sure. I I mean, they don't... I don't know why they even had cash. That's the real question for me on this one. They don't believe in paper money. <laughs> they, that, why do you... Listen, sometimes you have to operate use... within the system that exists. It's, it's probably is because they realized they couldn't actually use their gold and silver anywhere. Like they're at a gas pump trying to feed. They're at a gas pump trying to feed a nugget of gold. <laughs> uh, but Robert Fletcher, for his part, the, the, the Nazi that I mentioned, uh, him at least, and certainly others in the movement, 
egged on more violence, saying after the Oklahoma City bombing, expect more bombs to members of the media. Uh, Another early militia, the Michigan militia, was founded by Norm Olson, uh, an ex-Air Force non-commissioned officer in 1994. Um, As noted, McVeigh and Nichols attended several early meetings of the Michigan militia in 1995. And although Norm told the press that actually uh, the Oklahoma City bombing had been carried out by Japan, um, he he was forced to resign as the leader of the Michigan militia. I don't know why, man. I don't know why. Um, it's. I think it's because um, the Tokyo subway sarin gas attack was around that time, I think. I want to say it was like early 1995. So they were like, um, as you know, all attacks are done by the same people, including ones in different right, countries I mean, that have nothing to do with each other stylistically. <laughs> the sarin attack was Om Shinrikyo, mm-hmm. which is a Japanese right-wing cult. Maybe that's why he didn't believe that they actually did it, because maybe their ideas aligned with the militia in some mm-hmm. ways. I don't know. I'd be interested to know if he actually even knew how to pronounce Om Shinrikyo. Yep. <laughs> I'd be interested in finding that out. Uh, Norm remained involved with the Michigan militia. He was still a member, uh, but he, he, you know, criticized the group as being too moderate. Um, and in his later life, he moved to Alaska and bought some acreage. He is featured, I believe... Either in a Louis Thoreau documentary, or in, I, I think like you the kind of person Louis Thoreau would talk to. Oh please, you didn't know who Louis Thoreau was like two years ago when I first mentioned I him. I know who you. Louis Thoreau is. He's English. <laughs> I've known who Louis Thoreau is since before I moved. You see here. him at the meetings. Yeah, you yeah. see him at the meetings. <laughs> I definitely knew who Louis Thoreau was. I don't know who you're thinking of. I've, uh, I've watched somebody else. Then. I've watched uh, some other most British person. Of Louis I know. Thoreau's documentaries. <laughs> I love the man. I think he's great. I think he's great. Um, Although there is some valid criticism of, uh, I think, some of the stuff he's done with, like, Tom Metzger, the the Nazi leader um, who he went to Mexico Mm -hmm. with, where he just let Tom play dumb and seem like a dumb old man, which is sort of part of Tom's tactic. But I think, you know, the thing is, like, Louis also, his main tactic is sort of um, playing dumb. One of Tom Metzger, when he's, uh, his son is talking to Christopher Hitchens, because Christopher Hitchens is hosting a show for some reason, and he, his son is doing so badly that Tom calls in. <laughs> I haven't seen that. I haven't seen like, that. He, and then he's, yeah, anyway, I'll send it to you. It's a, it's a good Great interview. job. Rest in piss, Tom, you dumb dead motherfucker. <laughs> Um, he died like earlier this year or last year. He I don't did, remember. He Fuck died him. in 2020. He sucks. Fuck that. He was Nazi the white bitch. Aryan resistance guy. You got confused with. Yeah. Yes. He's, he's, he's one of the white Aryan resistance. He was the grand, guys. He yeah, was yeah. He's, grand he's the primary figure. He's the primary figure behind. But anyways, Sorry, uh, so, so Norm, Norm was either interviewed by Louis Thoreau or there was this vice documentary series that they did called, um, uh, hate thy neighbor oh, cool. with a British comedian, a black British comedian around and hang out with hate groups, which I found really interesting. Um, and I think it might've been him who went and, and hung out with them up there in, in Alaska. Anyways, it doesn't really matter, but many militia groups in this era even worked together and formed umbrella organizations, such as the Tri-State Militia, based out of South Dakota. Don't ask me which states are the Tri-States, I don't know. Uh, but I know there were Tri of them. Uh, but but lots their of, founder... Lots of uh, three themology emerging. Right, right. Uh, tri-corner hats, maybe yep. that's a thing, I don't Triumvir know. Triumvir conspiracies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Uh, things go good in threes, like Twix. Uh, but their founder was arrested in... Nine- that was a good joke. I don't know why I came up with that at the top of my head. <laughs> but the founder of the Tri-State Militia was arrested in 1999 for selling amphetamines, which he claimed was to fund the organization itself, and which I also think is a sign of how things had declined for militias by the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were hundreds of militia groups across the country, with tens of thousands of members, supporters, and sympathizers possibly going into the hundreds of thousands if you just include sympathizers and supporters. But things began to take a turn, late 1996, largely because of the arrests, convictions, and prosecutions of militia members and leaders for doing basically what anyone observing would have predicted they were going to do. Uh, And the movement at that point began to fracture and lose its momentum. So in 1996, the Free Men of Montana a group that had cooperated with the militia of Montana in the past, particularly in that courthouse incident I talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. uh, they had their own standoff with the FBI in Jordan, Montana. Uh, The group owned a farm outside of Jordan, which they referred to as Justice Township, and justice is misspelled. It is (laughs) J-U-S-T-U-S. No, that's how you... It didn't mean just us. It's just Uh, us. You know, that might be it. I'd love to learn that that was it. I'd really love to learn that that was it. Who lives here? Oh, just us. (laughs) That's great. Uh, But they had all declared themselves to be sovereign citizens, who, of course, were not subject to the law. And as a result, of course, they didn't pay any taxes. And of course, (laughs) (laughs) got arrested. And of course, they had committed bank fraud with fake sovereign citizen checks and money orders. It's so, all so embarrassing. These people is. should be embarrassed beyond anything else. You know what? You know, it's that thing I, I've said a couple times now, where all these people in their own heads imagine that they are triumphantly singing, Can You Hear the People Sing from Les Mis? Here's the thing. You never but, see- but in reality, they're just going... Just doing it in fart noises, this right? This is why like, it's that's... A, a mostly Protestant evangelical movement, because Catholics would have too much shame for this shit. Catholics at least ha- would have the rhythm on point, right? They'd be singing together on time. Oh, we do that shit. We, we, they do that shit in Catholic church. You have to sing with the choir and stuff. They got it down. They got it down. Some of those are unclear rhythms, too. Like, you got to know. <laughs> this is why every evangelical church I ever went to, they have to put the lyrics up on a projector because nobody with, fucking knows With, like, the karaoke them. bouncing nah, ball. Nah. You get that shit drilled into you in Catholic school. Yeah. You know those fucking lyrics. Yeah, you know the rhythm of that song. <laughs> yeah, because Catholics love the rhythm method. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> You were on a roll today. <laughs> <laughs> on a roll with my anti-Catholic. Actually, it wasn't even anti-Catholic. It was just a Catholic joke. <laughs> it's okay. I'm, I grew up Catholic. You can say it here. Uh, so in late 1994, eviction proceedings were filed against the farm that contained Justice Township. And of course, they refused to leave. And of course, since they were heavily armed lunatics, nobody really tried to get them out of there yep, until the right. FBI eventually got involved. So this time, uh, the FBI were focused on their financial fraud, and their initial contact wasn't even related to the eviction thing. Uh, they were doing a sting operation related to all this these fake checks and things mm-hmm. that the freemen were doing, and they managed to arrest two of the freemen mm-hmm. uh, and got eight warrants for the arrest <laughs> of the rest of the freemen. Who then famously were members. no longer allowed to call themselves the freemen. <laughs> <laughs> they were not. But they got eight arrest warrants for a number of the other ones who were on the compound. And finally, for once, Benedict, finally, the FBI managed to not completely fuck things Amazing. up. Amazing. 
Amazing. Congratulations to the FBI. They just set up a perimeter and waited. Wow. No armed raids, no tear gas, just waited and negotiated. Nice. And John Trockman, the founder of the militia of Montana, uh, warned militia members not to get involved in this, which I think is a sign of fear among militia leaders that they would get more bad press after Oklahoma City. But other militia leaders like Don Voss of Ohio and Bradley Glover of, Ar- of Kansas did want militia intervention, which presumably meant massacring the feds. It always means massacre. Uh, but after 81 days of negotiation, the freemen surrendered without violence, and eight of them were convicted and sentenced. Damn. And fun fact, I always like to throw these in. Several of them ended up getting additional time. Uh, one of them, because he tried to extort officials to release him by claiming that they were using his name and likeness illegally and that they owed him millions of dollars. Um throw some bullshit sovereign citizen like you you put my name in court papers or some shit like that and another one for filing bogus liens against federal judges which we discussed as a sovereign citizen tactic many episodes ago so they ended up getting more time put on because they try to do shit like that mm-hmm. but towards the end of 1996 a number of high profile figures in the movement had either quit or disbanded their group, citing things like the disarray of the movement or the fact that it was being taken over by nuts and crazies, quote, uh, as uh, Samuel Sherwood, the leader of the United States Militia Association, cited when he resigned in September 1996. And in 1997, the movement was basically crumbling. Uh, Spokesmen were quitting, like J.J. Johnson in Ohio, whose name I only included because J.J. Johnson's epic, epic name. Uh, arrests continued, which led moderate members who believed, uh, you know, that this this shit was kind of whack. It led them to start dropping out and leaving only the more radical ones still active. Uh, and in those years, small cells and splinter groups of true believers broke off, planned some actual violence, which, you know, a likely result of the fracturing of the movement, the increasing radicalization of those who remained. Uh, one such attempt was a planned attack on Fort Hood, Texas, which involved Bradley Glover of the Kansas Militia Group, the first mechanical Kansas militia. I guess they had like some Jeeps Great. would be my guess. Mechanical. They're mechanical. They, they had some cars. Um, <laughs> they have just, one really like, like early, early stages robot that's just like, I am militia. <laughs> they had like a Korean War era helicopter maybe that somebody had, had gotten a halfway run. Uh, but they believed that Fort Hood, which if you don't know is a, a military base in Texas, uh, was training Chinese soldiers for the eventual New World Order takeover plan. Uh, and members of this splinter group sold their homes and possessions to prepare for the attack. And they planned it for the July 4th celebration at the base, uh, whose attendees usually exceed 50,000. But luckily, at this point, undercover agents had already been made aware of what was right. going on. Because they had uh, initially sort of hinted toward this activity at a meeting of various militia members, uh, I believe, the year prior. Um, And there were undercover agents at that meeting who were alarmed by the rhetoric they were hearing from this particular group. And so at that point, they started surveilling this group and they were able to head off the attack. And it, but sometimes they weren't so lucky to head off the attack before it happened. Uh, in 1998, the Four Corners attack took place, in which militia members Alan Pallon, Ronert Mason, and Jason McVean, wow, I just realized all those names have like some French aspect to them, I think. <laughs> Maybe not Jason McVean so much, but Ronert sounds like it's supposed to be a Ronet. 
or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Murdered a highway patrol officer after he pulled over the stolen water truck they were driving and led cops on a multi-day manhunt that ended with two of the fugitives killing themselves and one remaining unaccounted for to this day. Come on, Unsolved Mysteries. This is what you should be talking about. (laughs) Oh, I think they actually the did do that. an episode on it back in the 90s because I Googled it and uh, it came up it. Unsolved Mysteries. That was the perfect uh, callback. You should have ended it there. I'm sorry. Right? Right? I should have. But leading into the 2000s, the militia movement dwindled even further. While picking up an increased tinge of anti-immigrant sentiment, as personified by the multiple border militias focusing on intercepting migrants on the southern border that have been sporadically active over the last two decades, as well as, of course, anti-Muslim extremism in the wake of 9-11, which together I think we could just point to as a growing streak of nativism Mm -hmm. among these militia groups. It is possible that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan played a role in decreasing militia activity and numbers in this period by providing an opportunity for actual war for those who otherwise might have been drawn to paramilitary LARPing. Probably doesn't bode well for now, though. No, no, but I think, and that's going to come up on our next episode, trust me. But I think the larger component was a combination of the massive wave of sort of rah-rah American patriotism that swept the country after 9-11 which is really directly at odds with the mm-hmm. militia movement's core conceit, and and that's going to hurt their ability. Yeah. That's going to hurt their ability to to recruit unless mm-hmm. they pivot, right? That by by the year two thousand one, two thousand two, they had a Republican president in office, a definable to them enemy to point their guns at, mm-hmm. the Muslims, and you know other two thousands decade events like the elimination of the assault weapons ban. The failure of Y2K doomsday predictions, which was a big strain among the militia community. There's actually a full episode of Alex Jones where he he's basically lying about things happening on New Year's 2000, claiming that the, the Y2K is here. Mm-hmm. Like there's a whole thing where a caller calls in and says that a nuclear plant is melting down or that a nuclear missile has been launched and <laughs> everyone's freaking the fuck out. It's great. Right. Um, but to find these people throughout the 2000s, You'd basically have to, you know, either listen to the Alex Jones show any day of the week or grab a shortwave radio or crawl through the weirder parts of the Internet. But a certain event happened toward the end of the 2000s that caused a new wave of militia activity. Was it a black person being elected president? Modified ideology. What? Uh, One that we'll talk about on our next episode. Uh The resurgence of the militia movement in the age of Obama, the Tea Party and Trump. Great. Thanks for heading me off there with where I was going at yep, the end. Yeah, sorry. But to finish Just today... saying um, the quiet part out loud, as always. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do want to end uh, by just reading a paragraph uh, from Mark Pickavage's piece that I, I based a lot of today's episode on, which is that uh, Militia Movement uh, Y2K article that he wrote, uh, Camouflage and Conspiracy. Uh, and it is, quote, As long as it remains, the militia movement poses a certain risk for domestic terrorism. Although it should be stressed that in political movements, even extreme ones, most members will not commit illegal activities. Nevertheless, although the not matching the hardcore white supremacist movement in terms of the number of major acts of criminal extremism over the past six years, the militia movement has emerged as probably the second most dangerous threat for domestic terrorist acts in this country. As the number of arrests, many for dangerous conspiracies have indicated, the extreme anti-government ideology melded with an intense fixation on weapons and explosives on one hand, and a fascination with bizarre and paranoid conspiracy theories on the other, creates a milieu in which the desire to acquire illegal weapons and explosive comes almost naturally, 
and the intent to use them against perceived enemies is not all that uncommon. Moreover, the militia movement has always had ties to Christian identity, and some of those ties have become more open in recent years. Belief in the tenets of Christian identity, as experience has shown, can increase the possibility of criminal acts or violent action. Even when militia groups, as groups, shy away from such extreme actions or reject members who propose them, those splinter groups or cells may pose even greater dangers because they are more difficult for law enforcement agencies to detect. Domestic anti-terrorism efforts since 1995 have been very effective in preventing acts of terrorism, but it is unreasonable to expect that no conspiracy will go undetected in the future. I think that's a suitably ominous line. Yep. Given that we know what has happened since this article since that, was written. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that, Benedict, <sighs> that is our, our episode on the beginnings of the militia movement in the United States. Okay. Um, you feel any safer following nope, that? Certainly not. Nope. No, nope. certainly no, not. I don't really either. But uh, as I said, in the next episode, we'll be covering, not the next episode, but the next Lunatic Fringe episode, we'll be covering, covering the modern era of the militia movement, the three percenters, the Oath Keepers, the groups that you see in everyday regular life out there uh, doing wacky shit and getting charged for for criminal sedition. So that's going to be a whole lot of fun. But thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, if you just can't get enough of us, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash NYGBC and become a patron for as little as $1 an episode for patron-only episodes, shout-outs on the show, early release of episodes, and more. As always, we have to give a shout-out to our wonderful and amazing patrons, Lilith210, A Baby, Veronica Forker, Melissa C., J.D., George Saulnier, Janet Utter, Stefan, Shannon Hellman, Utah Outcast, Brent Lee, Dave Barwick, Chris Palmer, Bad Bible Stitches, Mockingbird Nation, Bacra, Benjamin Carlisle, Dexter, Allison, Megan Ruth, Glowrung the Deceiver, Big Easy Blasphemy, Stephen and Cindy Dimmick, A.J. Brantley, Taro Tucannon, and Balls Washington. Thank you all, as always, for being our patrons. That's it for this week's show. Till next time, be afraid. Be very afraid. Goodbye. Bye. podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com.